I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Mena Van Prague all about her brand new book, The Sisters Grimm. Uh, it's, it's a twist on classic fairy tales. It's all about girls born on the same day of each other that need to find each other to save their lives, although one of them is destined to die. Now, she writes magical realism. We talk about that, why that keeps on inspiring her. Uh, we also chat about the moment that she finally found her voice and and how she figured that out after she'd been waiting for it for a while. Uh, also, you can hear how when she was self-published, she went a little bit further than most to actually get into the bookshops. And you can hear the best advice that her editor ever shared, which, actually thinking about it, might just be one of the best writing tips I reckon you've ever heard. A good book is always better shorter. And I kind of adopted that as my mantra. And she said, I, you know, I ask my authors to cut their books and then sometimes I'll get sort of a 500 page book and someone will have cut four pages out and they'll say, look, that's all I could take out. And she'll say, no, that's ridiculous. And she used to say to me, you know, see if you can make a chapter into a page then see if you can make that page into a paragraph and then see if you can make that paragraph into a sentence now that's an extreme example but it taught me so much about extraneous words there's loads more on the way with men of prague in this week's writer's routine Yes, welcome along. Uh, it's Writer's Routine. This is the show where we take a look inside uh, an author's working day, figuring out how they get stuff done. Uh, my name is Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening to us. This week's episode is sponsored by the Garnet and Petunia series by Captain William Gilbert. Now, have a listen to this, right? Just a little snippet of the immense life story of this author. As a teenager, he travelled on a tramp tanker out of Houston, sailed around the world uh, through Panama, over to the Far East, back to Saudi Arabia, then Gibraltar, finally threading through oil rigs in the Mexican Gulf during a ferocious storm. And you know how they say, write what you know? Well, William has done just that. There are three books in the Garnet and Petunia series. They're all dark comic mysteries following the bitter, twisted ex-merchant seaman who now runs a private detective agency in Bangkok where he's helped out by Petunia, who is his transsexual assistant. There's a lot going on here, so listen closely. There's amazing fun in the books. Uh, sorry to wheel out a cliche, but these really are roller coasters of stories. They throw you up and then down and this way and that, a bit actually like the voyage that William once took all around the world. Now, the series starts with the junior minister. That's the first book. And, and that begins with a disgraced British politician dying uh, in a Bangkok S&M bar. So you know that the, the fun, kind of wild nature that these stories will take when that's almost one of the first things that you read. And then Garnet and Petunia begin investigating this when they are distracted by a killer who seems to know Garnet from the past. Now, uh, there's a lot to get your head around there, but I promise they are uproariously fun books. They've been praised by The Telegraph. If you love darkly mysterious, funny, slightly twisted stories, uh, I really think these will be perfect for you. Or maybe 
The reverse of that, you're looking to expand your reading list and to take in genres that maybe you wouldn't normally try and put something completely new into the mix. I think this is a brilliant place for you to start. It's an amazing, adventurous way of supporting the writing community that we have here. Now, Captain William Gilbert has supported the show over on our Patreon page. So a huge thanks for him for doing that. And you can get copies of all three novels so far in the Garnet and Petunia series over on his website, which is CaptainWilliamGilbert.com. They are definitely worth you looking up. And you can also use the link in the podcast notes wherever you're listening to get a copy too. Now this week, our guest on the show is Mena Van Prague. She's talking all about her seventh book. It's called The Sisters Grimm. Now her debut uh, was Money, Men and Chocolate. Uh, and there is a brilliant story in this of how she got that story out there, why she self-published, and then how she managed to persuade bookshops to give her a chance. You can also hear about the brilliant deal that she made with her husband to live out her dream of, of actually being a published full-time writer. Now, The Sisters Grimm is a twist on classic fairy tales. You can hear how she came up with that initial idea in just a sec. We also talk about why these strange moments of magical realism continue to inspire her to tell stories. Uh, And she talks pretty brilliantly about the very first moment that she found her voice uh, after years of trying and not managing to actually hear what it was telling her. So stay there, I think it's a brilliant chat, and we start things off, as we always do, with what Mena sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So, I like to write in my study and in cafes. Um, In my study, I have lots and lots and lots of books. Um, None of my own books, pretty much, but lots of other people's books. And I have kind of a wall of just really beautiful books you know I collect books that just look gorgeous because their covers are exquisite and usually they've got good stories too and then I have my favorite books books that I just will always pull off for inspiration um I have five windows I'm in the attic so I have a lot of light which is really nice and I have a bit of art on the walls and I have like loads of trinkets that I've collected over the years that are usually all writing related. Well, talk to me about how a trinket is writing related. So what's it doing for, I mean, it's not just pens, is it? What, what, um, what, what is it doing to you? How, is, how, how are little collectibles inspiring you? Well, I'm really affected by my surroundings. So I can only sort of write in really nice cafes, certain types of cafes. And my study has to be you know, it has to have a good vibe to it, so to speak. And I collect things that are related to my book. So um, for the Sisters Grimm trilogy that uh, I've just done, I bought this gorgeous raven sculpture that I found in a in an art gallery. And that inspires me because it kind of gets me into the mood. And then I do collect pens, actually, a lot of stationery. Um and then there's like like a little Victorian hat made out of kind of funky fabric. And it's like a little museum in a way. Are you buying it? You, you mentioned uh, the, the raven that you, that you bought, which ended up inspiring you for the Sisters Grimm. Uh, did you buy that intentionally to do that? Or did you have this idea kind of knocking around your head and then you saw the raven and the two just kind of mashed together? Yeah, the latter. I find like a lot of serendipity happens in my life. So there's something will be going on in my head and then, you know, it opens up your awareness and then you see something. And so the raven, you know, I've been thinking of the book and there was a lot of that. I started to write a fairy tale where a woman turns into a raven and then I started seeing them everywhere. And then I saw this amazing sculpture and I was like, right, got to have that. And that happens quite a lot. Lastly, on the current room that you write in up in the attic, you mentioned you, you've, you've got loads of other people's books around you on shelves i've spoken to some authors before and i've been to some authors attics uh, where they have a lot of their own books on the shelves why, why do you not why do you not have many of yours on there what, what's going on is it uh, that you, you you're kind of done with that and you're moving on what's going on i don't really know i suppose i'm so focused on the one that i'm writing now and there's always a slight discontent with everything i've written in the past, you know, because it always should be better. The one that you're working on should always be the best thing you're working on, I think. 
Um, so I find it a bit, it's like having past love affairs, you know. <laughs> it's like I don't really have reminders of those. I'm just always on in the moment of whatever's going on now. Now, The Sisters Grimm is it's almost dark fantasy, magic fantasy, I think I'd describe it like that, um, with, with a dark cover. Uh, is that is that related in and you've got the raven there as well is that related in the walls around you or are they quite light and quite airy um no it's quite light and airy although i've got the illustrations for the book on the wall framed um or copies actually because the illustrator um i haven't bought the originals yet um because he did these four amazing illustrations for the fairy tales and they're very dark and grim. I mean, I wanted, you know, it's called the sisters grim for a reason. So it has that very grimness uh, for the stories. And, but I'm divided, you know, I have a dark side, I have a light side. So I have some of my stuff is dark and some of it's light, but I do have a new, well, a new antique writing desk, which I love, which I picked up in a, um, in a, antique shop before everything shut down and it's got sort of green and gold leather on it well green leather with gold embossed and and lots of drawers and I remember I bought it and my husband said why do you need that you've got a desk a perfectly good Ikea desk and I said no because it's got you know I can smell it I can smell the age I can smell the stories in it um because yeah it feels different to write in a desk like this and i think writers writers get that what is on the desk with you what 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 is there that is that is nudging you along to write so i've got like little things i've collected over the years so i'm just looking right now at um i got this i went to a place called the witchery in edinburgh which is this amazing uh, restaurant and their card is all gold and black so i got i took that with me and then um I've got some, I collected these two pound coins that had different like Shakespeare quotes and stuff on them. I went to, again, before lockdown, uh, a beautiful stationery shop in London and got a bunch of their um, inks, you know, so they have all these different color inks and they've got little stamps on them in, um, in gold and stuff. So it's like, it just gives me inspiration. You say that you take yourself off to the cafe sometimes to write. When do you do that? Is there a precise moment in your story which needs to be done in cafes? How does that work? Um, no, I just like to mix it up a bit. You know, I think I love to, well, pre-lockdown when I would take the kids to school and then I would often just go straight into a cafe because I'm a big morning writer. I think for me I mean I can write all times of day especially towards the end if some if things are really getting juicy um, but I really like to get as many words done as I can before midday otherwise I just find that if I don't get it done in the morning the day can go by so easily and I haven't got it done I don't know it seems morning hours seem to be different to afternoon hours they seem to be juicier and they don't go so fast when, when, when it when it's gone midday when you've got your words down how good are you at switching off I know I'm awful, <laughs> really bad at switching off. Um, it depends where I am in the project. In the beginning of a book, it's much easier to switch off. And But I was equate writing a novel to climbing a mountain. And at a certain point, I've got to the top and then I'm running downhill. Like I'm just, and then I cannot stop. I mean, I have to stop for just general stuff but I really don't want to. I get very grumpy and I just want to be at my desk all the time. How do you know when your writing day is over? So you say it's around midday. Is there a specific word target you've got in mind? Are you just feeling out scene by scene? Um, I do like word targets. I tend to give myself, it depends on the project, I tend to have for first draft um, 2,000 to 2,500 words. And then I, but then sometimes I get competitive with myself and I try and, you know, better that. <laughs> so um, that's not good. But I do sort of, I'll feel satisfied if I've got to midday or two o'clock and I've done those words. And then I'll maybe allow myself some time off um, to watch a film or read books or, you know, do other things. Because I'm a great believer in that you've got to live, not just write. Otherwise, you've got nothing to write about. You've got no juice. Um but I can then just go, you know, if I have the time, 
if the kids are doing other things, if my husband takes them, I could write until midnight if I allow myself. Two and a half thousand words is a, is a, is a fairly heady haul. That, that's, a, that's a big target to make. How perfect are those words? Or are you overwriting deliberately? Oh, no, they're not perfect at all. <laughs> Absolutely dreadful most of the time. Um, but that's how I like to write. And yeah, I'm a massive overwriter because I'm not a huge plotter. So I will write a lot and then I'll cut a lot. I mean, The Sisters Grimm, I probably ended up about 300,000 words and then it ended at 130,000 words. So there was a lot of cutting going on. Well, I spent my 20s um, discovering a lot of stuff and doing a lot of stuff really wrong. But uh, I remember I decided I wanted to be a writer. I think I was about 19. And I said to my husband, who I met very young, I said, right, I'm going to give this 10 years. I'm going to give this my whole 20s. And if I don't publish a book by the time I'm 30, then I'll give it up and get a real job. <laughs> so, so kind of you. <laughs> and I said, is that a deal? Do we have a deal? <laughs> um, and he said, yes, that's fine. So I spent my 20s waitressing mainly and just writing and writing, sending off stuff. I mean, those like that was back in the day when you actually had to post things to agents. You know, it was all done on paper. Um, <clears throat> and just got zillions of rejections and I didn't really know what it was I wanted to write and I was playing around with things a lot um I do remember the place I was when I first wrote something and I said this is my voice you know this is I hit something and that I always read that you had to write a million words or I don't know a hundred thousand words or some some kind of thing before you find your voice and I didn't know whether that was a real thing or not. What, what was the moment? Talk, not, not necessarily where you were, but what was it about what you had written that the penny dropped and you thought, this, this is how I'm meant to tell stories? Because it felt like I was writing without a filter, I suppose. It felt that it was just purely me. Whereas I think for most of my 20s, I was trying to write like other writers and I was, I was really, I found it really hard because I really admired writers like uh, Virginia Woolf and Dickens and all of these kinds of writers. And I thought, God, that's what you should have to write like if you are, you know, what I always had this thing of like, what's the point of being a writer if you're not going to write a great novel? Which was really, you know, difficult because I could not write a novel that was that great. So I was, you know, I would always stop and start again and stop and start again. And then I let that go. At some point, I let that go. And I just, the first thing I ever wrote that was with my voice was very much not literature. It was not literary at all. And it took real courage, I think, to just let go of all of those expectations and write something that was just purely me. How conscious was that decision of you then, of having a decade of desperately trying to write literary fiction and then not doing that and suddenly discovering how you write? Did that just did that just happen? Is that the story that you wanted to tell? Or was it a more focused thought of saying, right, that's not worked. Let's see if this does. You know what? I don't think I had a story before that. I, I, I was right. It never came from the heart. Everything that I was writing, I was trying to consciously come up with something that was well written. And after failing at that miserably for about nine years, um, I just wrote my story. I wrote something that was very autobiographical, but I turned it into a little fable. And it was about a failed writer who owned a cafe and desperately wanted to be a writer. <laughs> you know, it was very, very much me um, because I was a waitress at the time who wanted to be a writer and was failing at it miserably. Um, and I wrote that and it was so easy. It was the first time, you know, I'd spent 10 years trying, desperately trying. I could never kind of get past three chapters. And I'd go edit and I'd edit and I'd edit and it would always be too bad and I couldn't, I hated it. And then when that story came, when I just thought, right, I'm just going to make it simple. I'm just going to write this story about myself, about my life. I took two weeks off work. I sat down and I wrote the novel in those two weeks. It was very short. It was a novella. Um, but it just flowed. And I think it was because it had been in me for years. 
And I just sat down and I wrote it. And in the story, she self-publishes the novel. And when my mom read it, she said, well, now you've got to do this. You've got to self-publish it. And I said, no way. <laughs> just horrendous thought. And in those days, there wasn't, you know, Kindle and all of that kind of thing. And I I was about to turn 30. I was 29. I, was, I think I had a month left till I turned 30. And my husband was, you know, saying, right, come on. Suddenly dreaming of holidays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, come on, your time is up. Um, and I... So I kind of, you know, snuck around the back way. I self-published it. And I did all these crazy things like um, took, so I had to print it. I had to print all these copies. And then I took them round to bookshops and I baked the booksellers chocolate flapjacks. And I would go around and I say, look, please, can you put my book on the table? Please, can you put it in the window? And I remember just going around and oftentimes <laughs> they just told me to sort of. Um, but sometimes I made friends with them and there was a lovely girl in uh, Borders that we had back then and she loved the book and she sold 50 copies of it herself and in the end it took me six months and I sold a thousand copies and then I went to Hay House Publisher in London because it was kind of a little bit of an esoteric book called Men, Money and Chocolate and they published it and and it was because I'd self-published. They, it was because I'd achieved what I'd done. They told me that themselves. And then they sold it in 26 languages. And to date, it's probably still my best-selling book. Well, let me talk to you about the, the difficult second book. Because you finally realised the way that you can tell stories successfully. You've done all this. You've finally got a publisher. You realise that you don't need to write literary fiction, that you can write a story with a plot that's slightly genre how do you do, what do you do for the second book then? How do you force yourself to have an idea and not revert to type and think, right, I'm successful now. I'm going to finally write that Dickensian, Virginia Woolfian novel that I'm destined to write. <laughs> um, well, they gave me a nice advance for the second one. So, and they wanted something that was similar to the first one, which is quite often the case with publishers. So I didn't, I definitely didn't fall into that trap, but I did have a difficult time with the second novel. I mean, it was funny because sometimes you get into these arguments with publishers and I said, I wanted to write a sequel and they said, no, we don't want a sequel. And so I wrote a different book and they didn't like it. And I wrote another one and they didn't like it. And literally on the third one, they said, okay, write your sequel. And then I wrote it and they published it. <laughs> so I, I had to write these three other books that never saw the light of day before they realised, no, okay, fine. Has that voice that you found after toiling away for a decade, is that, has that ever threatened to go away? Has it ever been hard for you to instantly write in that voice? I know that this is quite um, a highfalutin question, but I'm, 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 voice, I'm very curious about voice in writing. And if it took you so long to find yours... Was it easy to, to, to hold it? Well, one of the things is I noticed it's evolved, it's changed. Um, so then after those two books, I started doing something different. And I, I mean, it was, all, it was the same kind of vein, but I did start to write things that were slightly more literary. And, but they're still, they were still magical realism. So they still had that essence to them. Um, but they were definitely more, you know, they involved a lot more research, they involved history, um, English literature, that kind of thing. So I wrote the next five books with those books and they they came very easily, actually. I mean, I did a lot of edits on them, but the voice, it, I think once it was unlocked, it didn't go away, touch wood. I'm like tapping my desk now. Um, <laughs> the new fancy desk. And um, with the Sisters Grimm, again, there has been a, a shift. It's a, My voice in this book is a lot darker. It still is my voice, but it, it takes on a different tone. And I think that depends with what I'm writing. Lastly, on the day before we crack on to talk more about uh your your work how um are, are you a, are you a laptop writer are you paper and pen for part of it how does that work i write a lot of my ideas i have so many notebooks i love notebooks i mean i'm just addicted to stationery so any excuse to write in my notebooks um so i always have one around and they're filled with 
just these ideas and random jottings and everything. But when I'm when I crack down to start, I might write the first chapter in pen just to get myself going. But once I crack down to the novel, it's always it's always on the laptop. And how is the edit? You said before that you overwrite, that you chucked away a substantial amount of words. Uh, How do you find the edit? Do you enjoy it? Is there a way that you go about it? I do. I used to hate editing. And then I had this wonderful editor at Penguin in the US. And she had this great thing. She She said, and I've become like this ever since, she said, a good book is always better shorter. And I kind of adopted that as my mantra. And she said, I, you know, I ask my authors to cut their books and then sometimes I'll get sort of a 500 page book and someone will have cut four pages out and they'll say, look, that's all I could take out. And she'll say, no, that's ridiculous. And she used to say to me, you know, see if you can make a chapter into a page, then see if you can make that page into a paragraph and then see if you can make that paragraph into a sentence. Now, that's an extreme example, but it taught me so much about extraneous words. And I notice that when I'm writing, I'm saying things a lot of times the same thing, but in a different way. And I, or I'm using different language or I'm repeating a scene. And she would always question you, what is the purpose of the scene? Does the scene have a purpose? Because if it doesn't, then you cut it. And then I came to love editing because I became a bit obsessive and I thought, yes, how can we do this? You know, how can we condense this and how can we, you know, cut words out? And I had um, a tutor at Oxford when I was, um, you know, 19 or something. And he gave me a great lesson. And he said, write that essay without using the word was or any derivative of was, were, you know, anything like that. And it forces you to use more interest, not only more interesting words, but more interesting sentence structures, because it's so easy to fall into a particular pattern, a particular structure of a sentence, and it can get really lazy. But if you do that, you have to think about things differently, you have to restructure. So I really enjoy editing now. And I love to just constantly hone it and make it better, polish it. Those writing tips and games that people play with themselves are absolutely amazing. Um, the, what your editor in America said, I think that's one of the best tips we've had on the show, really. If you can tell a, a chapter, try and do it in a page, try and do it in a paragraph, in a line, because um, it just gets you thinking about these things, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, I, another tip I love is when you're thinking of scenes, write down 10 alternatives. So you don't just use the first idea that comes into your head. You have to force yourself to use 10. And it's good if you're stuck on something as well. And so you have to write it down. You think, right, where would these characters be? Or who would these characters be? What would they be saying? How would the scene end? And usually, I mean, by the time you get to 10, you're coming up with ridiculous things because you're so desperate to come up with 10. But oftentimes, number six or seven will be so much better than number one, you know, than the first one. Because in the first one, you're just skimming off the top of your head. By the time you get down to 10, you're like really going deep into your, you know, inspiration subconscious. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back with more from Menavan Prague in just a sec. Uh, before we do, I want to say a massive thank you to Captain William Gilbert for sponsoring this week's show. Uh, please do find out more about his amazing Garnet and Petunia series over at CaptainWilliamGilbert.com and share the love uh, around our fantastic writers community that we've got going on here. Now, William was kind enough to sponsor the show over on our Patreon page. Uh, and if you'd like to do the same, if you'd like an entire episode of the podcast pretty much dedicated to your book, you can do that over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Uh, if you've spent ages working on a book, maybe lockdown slightly ruined the launch of it. If you want your work to be uh, heard by thousands of book lovers every month on this show, let me do that for you. Sign up to our Patreon page. Loads of tiers for you to get involved in from, from simple thank yous uh, to little bits of merch to the full-on sponsorship. Honestly, it really helps us out. It helps us keep bringing you chats with the best authors around as often as possible. Uh, so if you've heard anything over 120 episodes now, which is slightly tweaked and helped the way that you tell your stories, you can say thank you to us for giving you that over on our Patreon page. And just a dollar or so a month, honestly, would really mean the world. You can do that. You can support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Right, let's get back to it with Mena Van Prague then, talking about her new novel, The Sisters Grimm. Uh, in this half, we chat about how she knows what to plot, even though she doesn't really do much of it. How does she know where to put in the things that the story needs, where they go? Uh, and we talk about how screenwriting really helps her out with that. And we pick things up, talking about the new book, The Sisters Grimm, and kind of generally, where do the ideas come from? Well, I'm not, I don't think I'm very lucky with ideas. I get about one a year. Um, so I always get I'm so jealous when I hear writers saying, I come up with I have ideas all the time. Um, I get about one a year and I get them. Usually they don't come from me, but they'll come from someone saying something. Um, so I just remember once my mom was saying something about, uh, she'd seen this program on BBC one and it, it was about, um, in Cuba, the cigar, you know, the people who roll cigars, they employ someone to read them novels. And so someone sits up at the front of, of the room and reads them, you know, Romeo and Juliet and stuff. And I thought, oh, God, that's so – and it just sparked this idea in me. And I thought, gosh, what if, you know, someone had an enchanted voice and, and he was reading the book at bedtime on Radio 4 or something? And, and, you know, it just went from there. And so I know when it comes – I know when I've got – when an idea is given to me and I think, yeah, that has legs. And I'll, you know, it'll percolate as long as it needs to. Um, so I'll sit around or I'll walk around. I, I find – the ideas move much better when I'm moving. So I really like to take cycle rides or go for walks because sitting at the desk, sitting at the desk is for when I've got the idea and I just really need to get it down. But when I need, you know, when the idea needs to grow, I have to be moving. I think Agatha Christie said the best time for plotting a novel is when you're doing the dishes. And I, th I find that's really true. If I'm doing housework and I just let my mind drift and my hands are busy, then I come up with a lot, you know, ideas percolate a lot better let's talk about the new one then this is the sisters grim for us to find out how that became a book uh, talk to me about the very first moment that it came into your head how did that present itself who told you something about this one mena well this one was a bit different actually because uh so i'd given birth to my daughter and of course she didn't sleep and of course i was awake all night and this, I discovered something really interesting with this book that I'd never had before because I love sleep. I am a sleeper. I do not, I'm not a night writer. You know, I like to write in the daylight hours. I mean, before I had kids, I would write between 9 a.m. and midnight. I could, you know, write 15 hours a day quite easily. Um, and then obviously when you have kids, that changes. But with The Sisters Grimm, I started writing at 4 a.m. I don't know why, but it was just, I was thinking about fairy tales because I was 
you know, I had this baby in my arms and I was thinking about stories and I started to tell her stories and I was thinking about, you know, her growing up to be a strong feminist woman and all of that kind of thing. And I thought, gosh, well, fairy tales are really unfeminist. So I need to rewrite them. Um, And so I started rewriting them in my head and I found that the hours between 3 and 4.30 a.m. were very I don't know, there was something about them. The the silence, for one thing, was wonderful. And there was something special about knowing that everyone else was asleep, basically. Um, And it gave a different flavor to the writing. There was, uh, I felt more liberated in a weird way. And I could write things that were much more sinister than I'd written before. And it was almost like there was no one watching, so I could do what I wanted. And and that book really grew out of those times. And then I remember when my editor read it and he said, there's a quite hallucinogenic quality about this book. And I said, yeah, because I really was not asleep. I did start to hallucinate. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting as well how your different life experiences will affect the books. What do you mean there? Talk us through it. Well, I suppose because I've never, like when you were saying about, you know, crime writers, for example, cracking out two books a year. Um, you know, I love Agatha Christie. And one of the things I love is that I, I feel like I'm getting the same book. Um, and there's comfort in that. But I, I'm not, that's not something that I do. I, I want to explore things differently. And so when I wrote, I wrote five magical realism books and then I got fed up. I was like, yeah, okay, that's, you know, that's done now. I've written, they're all, they're very similar. They're set in Cambridge. They're, you know, there's a certain tone to them, a very um, light, comforting tone. And no, you know, my life sort of, sort of darker turn. And I wanted to express that. So the Sisters Grimm, I did worry that it would alienate most of my readers. And it has alienated a fair amount of them. But then it's got new ones. So for me, I find it exciting to always be exploring different different genres, different parts of myself, different parts of literature. Otherwise, I get bored. You had this general idea then, while uh, up late at night, you wanted to uh, write a feminist take on fairy tales. But that's a... Like that's quite a nice grand idea to have, but how do you actually distill that into plot? You've said that you don't really plot much, but how do you know what story you're telling, what you are going to write at 3.30 every morning? Well, that one evolved quite slowly because um, I started writing the fairy tales and I didn't really know that it was going to be something. But then I started thinking about the... I was thinking about the Brothers Grimm and I was thinking about the stories that they appropriated, basically. You know, I used to think that they wrote them themselves, but they took them from oral stories that, uh, you know, from Germany and all all these different areas. And then they wrote them down. And I was thinking, well, that kind of means that they're, you know, in a way, the fathers of all of these characters. And that gave me the idea for the Sisters Grimm, because I thought these different characters, these different fairy tale characters are all sisters. And then I thought, well, it'd be quite interesting if they were in the real world and they didn't know each other, you know. So you have Cinderella, who's running a cafe, and then you have Goldilocks, who's, you know, uh, maid in a a hotel and she's stealing things, you know. Um, And so I sort of was thinking, how would I put these fairy tale characters into the real world? And then that was how it evolved. But with that book, with that book, it was very unusual because I didn't know the ending. With all my other books, I always know the beginning and the ending. And that's what propels me to write the book because I'm what fascinates me is the trajectory of a character. You know, for me, it all all starts with character. And I know, you know, when plot and character comes together, that's when that's when you have gold. But for it always starts with the character. So I think, what how is this character going to transform? And what interests me about that transformation? And then the plot will come through that. You know, then I'll say, well, what's the character doing? And so I have those, I have that beginning and I have that end. And if the end excites me enough, then I'll start writing the story. 
And usually about five chapters in, I know whether I don't plot it, but I'll start going. And in about five chapters, I'll know whether I've got something. And if I have, then I might start to look at plot a bit more and think, well, who else is in it? What else is going to happen? Because there'll always be subplots. And, you know, I always write multiple viewpoints. I always write multiple characters. It's not just one. So it gets a bit complicated. But that it's the initial idea when I know the beginning and the end that drives me forward. In a very basic level, uh, the, the blurb to the story, that the kind of release that you get given when you do podcasts like this, uh, you've got a daughter's born to different mothers on the same day. Uh, they found each other at eight years old. They were separated at 13. And now at nearly 18, it is imperative they find each other once again. You, you've got your, your characters there. You know that you want to retell some fairy tales. Um, what's what, what's provoking you to link them together why are you doing that how, how where, where does that light bulb moment happen that you need to thread these two together in order to to get something dark and, and, and fantastical out of it I mean with all ideas it's so hard isn't it to pinpoint where where it where, where it came from well I was thinking about this idea a lot because I listened to your show a lot and I think it's fascinating and I heard um recently a interview with Zadie Smith and it said something she said something that I haven't really heard a writer say before because writers often say you know I get these ideas I don't know where they come from you know they come to me out of the ether and so on and so forth and she was saying well writers like to think that they're very original and unique but we have to acknowledge that we're standing on the shoulders of every other writer who's come before us and it should be the case that all writers are massive readers you know we should be studying our craft and we should be reading and we should you know usually you come to writing because you love reading so much and basically writers either consciously well hopefully not consciously but unconsciously are thieves you know not thieves in a way that you're plagiarizing but you're absorbing everything everything you've read everything you've watched you've taken it in and and it's it's going inside and, and it comes out of you again in, in your own unique way. But as we all know, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, Shakespeare took his plots, he, but he just wrote them beautifully. And I think we get kind of obsessed about these, you know, these ideas, these inspirations. But really, if you do a lot of reading and you do a lot of watching films and you do a lot of studying of plots, you can, you know, it will. It's not that you sit down and think, right, I'm going to use that plot. But you're mulling something over. There's something of particular sparks an interest in you. And then you'll write it. And it will come, you know, all these different elements will come in this way, which is why I think when writers say, I was hearing, you know, writers have shower, you know, it's like, what do you do to get your ideas or inspiration? You go for a walk, you have a shower, you, uh, you know, go for a cycle ride, you do the dishes. Well, you're doing something that allows your brain to just release and give you the answer. But I do think that the answer has been, you know, absorbed sort of years before. And then it is percolating and then it bubbles to the surface. I've got to the point where it's quite intuitive because I've written so many books well not that many books but I've studied the writing of those books and I remember um I a screenwriter once told me because I spent a lot of time in my 20s studying screenwriting as well and I think in terms of structure your 20s by the way seem to have gone on for about (laughs) the longest (laughs) decade ever you were so busy in your 20s I was I didn't have children so I could afford to be it was wonderful just do you know you just write obsessively all the time didn't need much sleep so you know just working all the time and I think when you're passionate about something and obsessed you just do it all the time don't you so yeah I studied screenwriting I wrote a whole bunch of screenplays um I actually started writing novels because I thought gosh really hard to get a screenplay made I bet it's a lot easier to get a novel published which didn't turn out to be the case but it was a lot easier than screenplays that was for sure um, but they're fantastic with structure, you know, because they're so regimented in terms of structure. Um, and a screenwriting friend of mine said, you know, you have to, when you're writing multiple plot lines, you realize that, you know, plot main plot A, you get a scene on that, then you have B, then C, then D, and then you bring another A. And you don't sort of make it A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. 
but you know, he showed me, I remember him doing it on a napkin and saying, and then you need, then you know that you need to bring in a bit of D right here. And then you've got to reference a bit of C and then you've got to do a bit more B. And it was just this marvelously simple kind of, it was like a light bulb going, oh, wow. And then I started to look at that and see, all right, so now I need to bring this character in because otherwise you've forgotten about that character. And now I need to bring a bit more of this in. And then there becomes a poetry to it because I always say that it's all structure. Writing is structure. You know, if you don't structure something right, you've got nothing. Like that is the foundations of a novel. It has to be structured well because it has to, it's like telling a good joke. You know, you have to be... You have to be getting the reader to turn the page. You have to be getting them to get to the end of the chapter and then to go on to the next chapter. And so you have to structure it well. What tricks of, of genre structure are you using when you're telling your stories? I'll, I'll go back to crime writing just for a second because I've spoken to so many of them. When you're writing thrillers and, uh, thrillers and crime, uh, the tricks that are used to structure a story and to keep me reading is fairly obvious. Uh, short, sharp chapters, a uh, hook on the end of every, of every page. When you're writing something that's a little bit different, like you are, uh, how what, what structure are you bringing to your novel to keep me around? I think, I mean, I've never written crime before, but I certainly... The, one thing I realised at some point was that we all have this compulsion to know how something ends that you literally just need to give someone a, some kind of mystery. So even if it's just that the main character is really upset about something, but they're not initially telling you why, you want to know. And I, what I find fascinating is that I can read a book that is that I'm not even really enjoying, but I just want to know. You know, if, if they've set up an interesting enough premise, I really want to get to the end to have that payoff. And so... I kind of work by the breadcrumb uh, method of storytelling. So I drop the, you know, I'll set something up that's hopefully interesting enough in the beginning that the reader wants to know. And usually it's that things have happened to the characters that they're not yet telling. And then you drop these little breadcrumbs so that you give the reader a little bit more information. And then, and then you'll have a little bit more information and then you'll have a little twist and then you're, you know, and they just, keeps propelling them towards the end so that they want to know what happens with characters you said earlier on that it's the character that always drives your writing when you're writing something like sisters grim with characters uh, who us as readers know from old how does that affect the way you are writing and the way you are telling stories and and how are you how are you expanding on these characters and, and and twisting them to make them different than we would believe well, this was the first time I ever took characters that had already been done. So normally I'm just making them up. But this I felt I found really it was a lot easier and a lot more fun because you can invert them and you can. So, for example, when I had the idea of Goldilocks, you know, working in a hotel and she's a thief, you know, because Goldilocks goes around sleeping in people's beds and eating their porridge. Um and then that was this great character trait. So I had her stealing from them and then thinking, why is she doing that? Um, and then Beauty and the Beast, you know, she was really feisty. And then I had, you know, I inverted the idea of who the Beast was in the story. And he was this really tender man, but he didn't look that way. And um, it was, it gave extra depth because everyone knows these characters and so you're all you're not having to set up loads of extra stuff because the readers are already bringing their awareness and their knowledge to a book so I found that was easier in some ways and harder in others because then I think they bring a weight of expectation to the story as well but it was really it was really fun for me to do and lastly you said when you wrote this, you've changed what you have written in the past because you fancy something different, because you don't want to write uh, magical realism anymore. Um, and and th this is a, a, a slight change and it's, it's kind of left some of your audience uh, behind, for want of a different phrase. Uh, the fact that you're prepared to do that, that you are willing to, to do something that might be a bit untested, that maybe not everyone will like. What is in it for you when you are storytelling? What 
why are you doing it what are you getting out of it well because i'm obsessed with stories i mean i love to read them i love to hear them um i love not only fiction but i love the craft which is why i teach as well and so i'm always obsessed with how writers are doing what they're doing and how they're making it better and how they're making it effective and so i that always propels me forward and I always want to do something different and explore a different way of telling something so I've just started doing my first piece of historical fiction which I've never done before but I studied history at university and I thought you know why not and it's been an idea that's been again percolating for many years but I just never touched it and I always believe in timing as well because there's you know you can really feel whether you're procrastinating or whether it's just not the right time for something. So I'm a real believer in that, that you know when it's time to sit down and you know when you're just putting something off or you know when you're just needing something to percolate because sometimes you can push yourself too hard and then nothing is really coming. And I've been very aware of doing that as well. So it's all about getting that balance. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Mena Van Prague for telling us all about how she wrote The Sisters Grimm. Uh, if you are thinking of getting a copy of that after the chat, why don't you use the link that is in the episode notes and over at writersroutine.com. That way it's win-win-win. You get a book, Mena sells a book, we get a little bit of kickback from the big boys as well. Also, thank you to Captain William Gilbert for helping us out over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine and getting his fantastic Garnet and Petunia series to sponsor the show. You can find out more about that on the website. Now, next week, we're chatting to Erin Kinsley all about her new novel, Innocent. Uh, in the meantime, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Follow us on Twitter and make sure you subscribe as well so you never miss an episode. And we will see you next week with Erin Kinsley on Writer's Routine. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.